Let's open prayer. Lord, we just thank for this time to be able to look at your word and to study. We ask you to lead and guide as we mention, look at what you'd have us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is our introductory class into Revelation, and we are starting that today. The book of Revelation was written around 96 AD by the Apostle John. Uh, John at this time had been exiled to Patmos. It was a penal colony for the criminal, dangerous criminals. Uh, before that, they had tried to boil him, at Rome had tried to boil him in oil and had failed, and then they sent him to Patmos. John was the bishop of Ephesus before that, and by tradition, after he was released from Patmos, returned to Ephesus to be their bishop again. The title of the book is Revelation, and not Revelations, as most people pronounce it. And it's oftentimes in the older Bibles called the Revelation of St. John the Divine or the Revelator. And we're looking at that. The outline of the book is really simple. It shows us what is and what is to come. And the book has, is the one book that has a promise. And it is in this section, the first section that we'll look at. And it's a promise of blessing to those who read and hear. The book titled Revelation literally means to lay bare or disclose truth. And that is what it will do for us. It will show us things to come. It will be able to clarify everything that we're looking at and be able to show what will be in the future. And it also showed what was in John's time. We're going to be entering into, in this study, a very relatively soft area because it's talking about future events. Most of the time we can get very dogmatic. The Bible says this or it says that. When it comes to the future, however, we have great problems with that. It, there will be very few dogmatic statements. There's things that I definitely believe, things that I will give reasons for what I believe. And we will also show some of the other beliefs and, and why and some of their strengths and weaknesses. But for the most part, it is very hard. Revelation for, for millennia was considered to be very much a symbolic book. People couldn't understand how certain things would be true. Simple things like the witnesses that would be killed and that the whole world would watch them. For many, many years that was considered just symbolic. How could that happen? Even as late as the 70s and 80s and early 90s, we, we could see how everybody could watch them in delayed time as, as tapes and were broadcast. But now in our time, we look at it and say, we will see an entire t cable station dedicated to, here are the witnesses, 24-7 news coverage of the witnesses laying dead. And we understand that that would be cable channel, uh, internet channels, everything. We now understand that it is not symbolic. So we will look at this carefully. We will not go to symbolism very easily. There are there are two ways that the book of Revelation is considered to be interpreted. For one has been allegorical or symbolic, where they try to make everything into a symbol and kind of ignore whatever the literal meaning is. And that really changes it. It says that there's special knowledge and how, how and you need really revealed knowledge from God. So we will not go that way very often, and it, the only way we will go to symbolic is if it absolutely has no other way of being interpreted. My training in hermeneutics, or the art and science of interpretation, says that you always go with the scriptures literal first, and then go to symbolic. 
And so we will follow that routine in, in our study of Revelation. It says what it says, and it means what it means in a literal format, unless it is very clearly poetic or symbolic. We will cover many of the different eschatology views or eschatology simply means, simply means the study of end times and Revelation is the primary book of end time studies. We will make some excursions into Daniel and Thessalonians as well over, the, over our studies. So this is our introductory as we look at it. Uh, the, the book outlines pretty simple what what was at his time, or from his perspective, what is, and then what is to come. So we will get started here and look at, at the book of Revelation, and we're going to start. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants with things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified by his angel unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Okay, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. This is... Some of the newer versions of the Bible will say that this hymn is capitalized, indicating that it is God. And But I think because it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, is talking to John, to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So we were going to just deal with that belief, belief that it is John. Could it be Jesus? I, I, it is possible. But it goes on to say here, to show his servants. And that literally means to expose. To expose to his servants. And this word here, servant, is doulos. And that means a bond servant. That isn't somebody who's forced to serve. A bond servant is one who voluntarily chooses to serve someone else. And this is what God's saying in this. That he is going to show his servants, his bond servants, things which must, be, must shortly come to pass. And this word shortly is one that gets us into lots of trouble as we talk about it. We talk about we are in the end days, and it's being talked about it by many people. We are in the end days. And then you hear the other people complain, we've been saying you're in the end days for millennia. This is true. We are, it has been said for a long time, we are in the end days. And we are. We're, no matter what your view on this is, we're one day closer than we were to the coming of Christ. But this word shortly does not necessarily mean a reference to time. This word shortly literally means quickness or speedily, but it also means completely fulfilled. God has to completely fulfill his plan before Jesus returns. And that could mean that there's a certain number of people that have to get saved, there's certain things that might have to get done that God knows. As far as we understand, everything that needs to be done is done, and we're just waiting for Jesus' imminent return. And it's very important that we understand that this shortly leads to imminency. Jesus can return at any moment, and we want to understand that. This gives us reasons why we have certain stands. There's the view of the, the 
tribulation, either being pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation. I, for years, have gone through back and forth, back and forth on, on where I believe on that. And I've come to the place where I am strongly pre-trib. Biggest reason is this shortly, the eminency of Jesus Christ, the not knowing when. If you're going to be mid-trib, then you know that it's some place that once the tribulation starts, you've got about a three and a half year period before Jesus returns. For those who believe in post-tribulation rapture, I don't understand how they could, but they know when the end will be because seven years after the tribulation starts, they will go up with Jesus and come straight back down. The, the pre-trib position fits because his imminent arrival is true. We will arrive when, with the, at any moment that Jesus can return. We will go with him in a Jewish wedding ceremony to be with him, to be married, supper of the Lamb. The Jewish picture of a wedding is that the, the groom kidnaps the wife, his spouse, from his, her father's home, takes her to his home, and they have a party for seven days, which would equate to the seven years of the tribulation. So we get those pictures, and very strong pictures of the, of the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, where we will celebrate with, the, with our groom while God judges the world. Speaking of the judgment of the world, we want to bring out the very fact of these judgments that Revelation tells us about is not God being angry and cruel to the people. This is He's taken his church out of the way and he's dealing with people with, with harshness, but the reason is to draw them to him. We see that picture over and over in the scriptures. In the book of Judges, the people did what was right in their eyes. God sent a somebody to talk to them, then he sent to judgment uh, in physical judgment, and, and then he would send them into captivity of some sort where somebody ruled over them. Israel and Judah did the same thing. Over and over, God sent prophets and, and tried to direct them and bring them back to repentance, and they would decide, sometimes decide to repent, sometimes decide to get worse. And God would eventually, for both nations, take them into captivity and spread them around the, the world. This is the nature of the way God deals with us, and even ourselves as individuals. We, we sin, we do what's right in our own eyes. God sends uh, messages to us from pastors and deliver, deliverance, and we either make a choice to ignore him or, and get worse or repent. At some point, he sends harder and harsher judgments upon us, trying to bring us back, not to hurt us, not to make us feel pain but to bring us back to him and this is the whole purpose of his judgments upon the world in the book of Revelation he's trying to draw all people to him if he didn't do it through his mercy and grace he will attempt to do it through his judgment and wrath so we want to look at this at this shortly when that when everything is done these things shall come to pass and he said he sent and signified it by his angel and this signifies means to make known. He's making known this message by his angel unto his doulos John, his bondservant John. So we look now at verse 2. Who, and that's John, who bear witness of the word of God. Word of God is very clear distinction that he's talking about Jesus. This is John writing. We refer back to John 1.1, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we also look at John. John, in all of his books, has this very strong decision and title that he's 
going to be talking about in, in first John he says that which was in the beginning which we have heard and which we have seen and with our eyes and which we have looked on and handled with our hands and handled of the word of life or the word of God so we're looking at this that John is very clearly saying that the that he is bearing record of Jesus and the testimony of Jesus and all the things that he saw and John is going to see some things. We want to think about this and, and look as we look at this. There are places where it may appear to be symbology that he's talking about. You've got to think, though, John is a first century person trying to describe things in our day or beyond. How would a first century person describe a car? How would they describe a plane or a helicopter? How could they even imagine the speeds at which things move? He's used to the fastest thing in his mind is a chariot. So we want to think about this as we look at look at his descriptions. He is seeing bizarre things from his point of view. He does not understand them. He cannot, cannot even fathom what he's looking at at times. But we're going to take that it's that it's literal. We're going to look at how, how that description might fit in certain areas. And we're going to find that he is bearing a good record. That he is speaking of all the things that he has seen and that he is that he's going to try to keep with people next blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written thereof for the time is at hand the word blessed so often when we see the word blessed we are told simply blessed means happy and it is a good definition as far as that goes but blessed is so much more than just happy I read one definition in a, in a lexicon, and here it is. A believer in the enviable or fortunate position from receiving God's provision or favor from which extends by his grace, or is made large by his grace. We have blessings because of his grace and where he has put us. And we always want to remember grace. Grace is the wonder of us as for Christians. The acronym that we remember oftentimes is God's riches at Christ's expense. We get all that God has for us, and Jesus paid for it. We are made joint heirs with Christ. We have everything that belongs to Jesus has been given to us because of grace. It's an amazing thought when you think about it. Grace. The definition we use so often for grace is a very simple one not getting or getting what we don't deserve getting what we don't deserve is so precious we get blessings we get God's love we get his peace we get his comfort we get everything all the riches of God and the fullness of God the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in our Lord then he dwells in us we've got all of God in each one of us the infinite God fully in each one of us. An amazing thought to think about. How can we even begin to contemplate his blessingness from his grace? He gives us and he makes his grace larger and larger. He changes us by his grace. He changes the way we look at each other by his grace. We get to know him by his grace. We want to follow into who he is. And then it says, blessed is he that reads this 
prophecy. And this read is not just to read, it is to know accurately. It's not, how many times have you read something and you get done with it and then say, well, what did I read? I have no clue what I read. This is not what this is all about. This is literally about knowing accurately. Study it. Consider it. Meditate upon it. It is not just sitting there and reading the words. Okay, I read it and don't remember it. This is so important. Know accurately. And then it says, And they that hear the words of this prophecy. And again, this word for hear is not just having it hit the ears and bouncing around the eardrums and, and registering in the brain. It is to attend to. It has the idea of the old saying, it, to hear and obey. My plan is not just to hear what he says. My plan is to obey what he says. To go out and purposely do what it is that we hear. And we want to be able to look at this. It's not just read and hear. It is accurately understand to know and hear in a way that says yes I am listening and I intend to obey. Too often we spend so much time hearing God's word. We go to service after service. We go to study after study. We listen to preacher after preacher, radio shows and all that and we get through the day and say what did I learn? What did I what has changed in my life on that? God is not saying that the blessing comes from just listening. He says the blessing comes from to know accurately, to figure out what is being said, and to hear and attend in a way that says, I'm going to be obedient. And it's very true on that. And then it says, this prophecy. There are those that try to say that this promise goes to all of the scriptures. And you know, there is a place where Reading the scriptures brings us blessing. But this particular thing is for this prophecy. This prophecy has the direct blessing internally given within it. Yes, the rest of the word of God is going to help us grow. It will help us be developed. It will help us be blessed in obeying God and drawing closer to it. It will help us be sanctified. It will help us grow grow closer to God. It will help keep us from sin. But the blessing that is being referred to here is for this prophecy of the end times. And it says, And keep those things which are written. Keep, guard, guard what is written. So often we see this in the scriptures. Psalms is full of it and Proverbs is full of it where God says, Guard these words. Keep them in your heart. Put them into a strong tower, a protective box. We keep and guard what's important. If we don't think much of it, we don't guard it. This is one of the things people kind of laugh at me at times because I always lock my car, even in Kingman and and Chloride. Low, Low crime areas, so many people just don't lock up. Well, To me, the car is important. Is it valuable? No, it's got practically no value as old as it is, but it is my only transportation from point A to point B that's reliable, so therefore, I lock it. I know that it can be broken into, but I'm not going to make it easy. God's word is to be that way. We are to care for it. We're to hide it in our heart. We're to lock it away under guard and keep it guarded. 
not letting Satan sweep in and steal the words that we hear, not letting him destroy what it is that God has given us. And it says, These things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now this word for time is not chronos, which would be just a period of time. This word for time is literally a definite time period with the idea of suitability. God has a definite time before he returns. He has enclosed it. He had a beginning and he has an end. The beginning of the time of creation through Jesus and the time at the end when he will when Jesus will return and the end will be the time clock for the end of this current world will begin to be known to us the church is taken and then there's 1007 years until the completion of this world and it's given to us in scriptures it is what revelation is all about this specific definite time frame that we have that God has planned. What all has to happen during this time plan, this time period? We don't know. Again, many believe that there's a certain number of people that must be saved before Jesus returns. That could be the only thing that's left. We don't know. I tend to believe that that may be true. So we want to save souls. Get the last person saved so that we can enter into the rapture with Jesus. But what it is, God knows. God knows what has to be done. What signifies the end of that time period that says, now is the time. Now is the time that we will be taken home to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, to stand before Christ for the judgment of our works at the Bema Seat Judgment, where all of our works will be thrown into the fire. Those done by in the flesh will be burnt. Those that are done by God through us will be rewarded for and they will be eternal rewards that stand the test of time and eternity that will not rust will not corrupt where is our rewards then we will come back with him we will come back with him after the marriage supper of the lamb as he comes back to be the king of the world the messiah that the Jews have long been waiting for he will rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Then at that point, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be, after he's bound for the first for the thousand years, he will be released. He will be able to try people's hearts. And it's always wondered, why would anybody, after a thousand years of perfect peace, decide to follow Satan? Well, he's ruling with an iron rod. He is going to make people be obedient for a thousand years. The ones that lived through the tribulation period and entered into the millennial kingdom have the sin nature still in them. We as his bride will have our glorified bodies. We will not be subject to the sin. We will not be tempted to sin because we do not have the sin nature. But those who are going through the millennial kingdom that lived through the tribulation and their children will have the sin nature. They will be forced to be obedient when everything in their body and their, and their flesh says, No, I don't want to go. I don't want to be obedient. Then Satan is released. The thought police during the millennial kingdom, you even think about doing wrong and God's there saying, no, you're not doing it. Because he knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then when they get the opportunity to sin, it's something that they've been wanting to do. Many will choose to sin and rebel. And then God will throw Satan, 
the demons, and all those people that choose to 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 go with him into the eternal fire. He'll destroy the heaven, the current heaven and earth, and create a new heaven and earth. The new Jerusalem will come down, and we'll have a perfect environment to live in. Well, that's all the revelations. We're done. No, we're going to continue. You now know the the the, the overview of the story. And then it says that it is at hand. It is right there. It is nigh. It is so close. It says these things are written for the time, the definite end of that time is at hand. And we think about this, you know, and we go, well, God, it's been 2,000 years since you first said that you'd be coming back. The, the disciples expected it to be that you were coming right back. All of the early church fathers expected you to be right back, and we're still today saying you will be right back. God, it's been 2,000 years. That is not quick. Well, not quick to us as humans where we have very short lifespans. Even if we lived a long time, a thousand years, 2,000 years still seems to be a long time to us. But we're talking about the God who had no beginning, no end. He sees time. He sees that 2,000 years as just a twinkling of the eye. Not even that much. It doesn't even make a twinkle of the eye. It's not even a portion of a small millisecond of time to God as far as he's concerned. It is quick. It is quick. He does things in his own time. And we so often will complain to God, God, why are you so slow? Our God is never late. He is never early. He is right on time. He is an untimed God. He does things in our, in, for us that are best when he knows that's best. He's not going to do it too early for us because he wants us to know that it was him that did it. He doesn't want us to think that it was us that did it. He's not going to be late and make us suffer to the point where we couldn't make it through and we are crushed. He will provide when he desires. So many times when you pray for help from God, you get it right at the last possible moment. Have you ever prayed to have a bill paid? God will usually wait to the last possible second and then provide the funds to pay that bill. He doesn't want it to be looking like we did something. He wants us to know that it is Him. He is on time. Not only is the 2,000 years that this, that since Jesus came a, a short time to God, the entire time of earth, the seven to thousand years of earth six to seven thousand years of earth are a short time to god not even a twinkle of an eye not even a millisecond of time as far as he's concerned he is eternal he has all the time and he knows when it is right nothing about this is going to be a surprise to god it's it's nigh he has the appointed time we've talked many times about his omnipresence when god predicts the future it is not a prediction it is, he has already seen it fulfilled. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And we've said it over and over. God is with Adam and Eve right now. He is with Jesus and the disciples at the crucifixion right now. He is with us in this room, wherever you're listening, right now. He is with the millennial kingdom right now. How can this be true? He's omnipresent. He's every place, every time, at the same moment. He is outside of time. God does not exist in time. He stands outside of time and looks down on time. When he makes a prediction and he gives the prediction, it is not just a prediction. It is just a narrative of what he has already seen. This takes us into quite the dilemma. 
Do we have a free will? Can we make changes? Could, do we know, do, or are we forced to do things? In this case, it is God looking down upon things and says, I know what's going to, I know your decisions already. There is, there aren't any options because I already know what you're going to decide. And then he puts people in, in behind us when he knows that we don't follow him. He puts somebody else behind us. But God is, is sovereign. He will, he can make things happen as well. So God is saying this testimony that he has of the things that he saw and the blessed of those who read and understand and keep these things which are written because the time is at hand it's nigh it's close we need to always keep in mind that the time is close and that we need to be able to understand that the imminency jesus can return at any moment he is not locked into anything that has to happen there is not anything he returns quickly by his standards. He right now is preparing the house. That is what the groom does in the Jewish wedding. They get engaged. They're considered married. He goes off and he builds the place for the, the bride to come to his house and the room and prepares everything for her so that when he does bring her into the, into the house, there's a place for her that has been created just for the bride. And this is the beauty that we have. Jesus has been building this house for us to dwell in for 2,000 years. Oh, the beauty of this house must be that he has built. The beauty of the house that he is building, that he spent 2,000 years. He created the earth and the heavens and the universe in six days. And he's creating our eternal home in 2,000 years. Oh, oh, the beauty of what we have to look forward to. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him that is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. I don't know how far we're going to get in here because we're running out of time. Uh, but John the, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Here's a map that you can look at. This has got a map of, of the seven churches in Asia there that are going to be referred to here. They're this little horseshoe of red dots that you can look at. There are also ones that and John was the Bishop of Ephesus. He would have been very much around and in, in, in communication with their churches. He knows of their churches that are going to be used of God to show, and they're going to, and he's going to use John's knowledge of them as he brings it out to them. And these are the churches. And his first greeting is that grace. Oh, the grace of God that we've already talked about. The grace that extends to us and gives us everything that God God has for us and that are out there and he says grace grace to the seven churches that are the primary ones that he's writing to in his writing the seven churches that he loves dearly because of being the bishop over them and having spent time amongst them and going in and out of them and, 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 and ministering to them his great love of a pastor's heart toward those churches of his his beloved Ephesus, his overseeing of the, the pastors that would have gone to these other churches, the love of a pastor's heart. Pastors have a deep heart for their people as they minister to their people, and they want them to, to grow, to see God's grace, to learn God's grace, to be treated with God's grace, to want to grow and see where they're at, to, to develop. The heart of the pastor is to present the gospel, present truth, present the word, 
be able to teach it in a way that will change lives and, and just to love people, to make them grow. This is John's heart toward these churches. I can picture his heart breaking as God pr pronounces these judgments upon them and these complaints against these churches and his heart breaking saying, I've taught them, I've, I've tried to get them to, to love you, God. I've reached out to them. I've taught them over and over again, and all of us are the same way. We hear the messages over and over and over again, and yet we will reject the message so often. We will not let it get into our hearts sometimes. We will, we will not hear to obey, and yet God is saying, I'm going to keep giving you grace. I'm going to keep extending this. I'm going to keep repeating this. God's tests are just that way. When, we, when he gives us a test, he says, you're going to pass this test before we move on. We have a school system and ways that we go on where we give people information, we test them, and it doesn't matter whether they fail or not, we're going to move on. And that makes sense when you've got a large group, but God has an individual plan for every single one of us. He keeps the test going until we pass the test. How many times have you done a test? I, In my lifetime, I had a test that it took me six years to finally pass. But it's prepared me for where I'm at today. It's prepared me for many of the things that I've gone through. But it took me a long time to learn. And God says, you keep getting this test. I'm going to keep throwing this test at you until you learn it. Keep going. Learn it. And then it says that this is to the seven churches. The churches, Ecclesia. The called out assembly. The church is a called out people. What are we called out of? We're called out of the world system. We have, we have chosen a new country, a new king to give allegiance to. This is something we need to understand. We are called out. We, know, we are no longer part of the world system. We are made and, and partial of God's kingdom. And we, we oftentimes will tell people when we're witnessing to them, come to Jesus and, and everything will be okay. That message is one that is a lie from the pit of hell. You switched armies. You switched, you switched countries. You switched allegiances. Satan does not let people go simply because they, they want to. He will attack. He will try to get them back. We are the church. We are the called out ones that are to stand with God and his kingdom. We represent a new God. We're his ambassadors. We're his people. We have a new way of thinking. The world gives us all kinds of ways to think. God gives us truth and Satan comes up with a whole host of lies. For every truth that God has, Satan has multiple lies. And we need to grab hold of what he believes because we are the called out ones. We need to learn to think with God, to act like God, to learn from God. And the way we do that is by getting into the word of God and changing our thinking. Changing our thinking by just indwelling into his word, by being baptized in the Holy Spirit and being, being changed because we are immersed in the Holy Spirit and he changes us into his likeness. Not because I did anything, not because I'm working hard, but because we're immersed in the Spirit and He makes the change. And this is what we're going to look at. As we go forward in this book, we're going to see more and more of this. And this is as far as we're going to go today is, is the word grace in this uh, chapter, verse 4. And I'm hoping that this is going to be good because we're running out of time and have some editing to do on this one. But let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for this lesson. We thank you for the time that we have to learn your word and ask you to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.